So, Annabelle uh, Crabb. Um, Lee Sales, hi. Do you ever watch or read anything that I tell you to read or watch? I just did. <gasps> I actually just did. What? I actually just I actually just did. What? I finally watched Dior and I. There you go. Love a little treat for you. Wow. It really was one of those things that I privately had resolved never to see just because you'd told <laughs> me to do I it more than ten you. times. You're awful. Anyway, I was on a plane the other day. And I had stuff to do and I thought, no, I just really feel like watching a movie. But as you know, I hate movies these days. Mm. So, And I really – I would prefer to watch a documentary. Mm. I'm just such a – just a horrible old <laughs> bitch about movies. I just never like them anymore. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll watch that. And, of course, within about two minutes I was completely enthralled by it. Amazing, isn't it? Dear God, it's so good. How fascinating is is the designer though? What's his name? Um, Raf. Raf. Um, Raf. Forget it's, his last name. Yeah. It's that moment where Simon's Raf. Simons. Simons. Yeah. So Raf Simon's is the designer who's you know um, controversially um, enlisted to to be the couture, to be the designer at um, at the House of Dior. Coming in from Calvin Klein, which is a very yeah. different sensibility. Jill Sander. He was. He was with. Oh, Jill was he Jill Sander? Sander? I thought yeah. it was Calvin yeah, Klein. Yeah, but right. basically like. You know, very different right. kind of vibe. What I think is he's so neurotic. It's really interesting. What about the bit – so it builds to the showing of his first collection and what about the scene before it starts and he's sitting on the roof with one of his staff, I think. And he's just crying. And he just starts crying for anxiety. I was nearly like felt physically ill yeah. myself from anxiety. It was like catching his level of anxiety. Yeah, he was so overwhelmed. And like you get a bit of a sniff of it approaching the um, the – showing of his first collection, for which, incidentally, they hire this magnificent old palace, basically, and he decides that what he'd really like as a sort of homage to Christian Dior who loved flowers is just to cover all the walls inside of this building with flowers. And you can see them, like, even all of the nut bars that are presumably associated with a, like, couture fashion house are just like, wow, that's uh, that's quite out there. <laughs> but they do it and it looks it just amazing. Looks Imagine what it must have smelled like. It was probably quite cloying, actually. Yeah. Um, um, but lots what? of bee sting injuries. Um, but as it's sort of about to take off um, and he's having this meeting with the press sec who's like, well, we'll need you to do this. And he's like, I'm not doing any interviews. Also, I'm not walking down the catwalk because I will faint from anxiety. And you're thinking, mate, are you in the right line of work? (laughs) Unbelievable. But then, yeah, as as it's um, about to happen, he just goes into this incredible meltdown, basically, basically a a sort of a panic attack, really. Um, And it's amazing that he allowed the cameras to follow him because he's obviously yeah. really self-conscious and doesn't like being interviewed or filmed. Quite so shy, yeah. how did that guy... I don't know. Maybe they said... To, I mean, I found it fascinating. And, I mean, it is it is historical like to, to see the creation of a collection like that. I mean, what about all the pe- the couturiers who work oh. in the studio? In the atelier, I should say. They were um, amazing. And... The skill. Yeah. Like, and they all just looked like... If you got the bus home with any of those people... You would you'd not know that they could craft the yep. most exquisite garments. Also, what I loved is just the detail about how it all comes together and that they were talking about how, yeah, it's always a panic. 24 hours before the show, you don't have anything. Like they said that it, it all of the garments are pretty much flat up until about 48 hours beforehand and then suddenly they're all assembled, you know. It, it's incredible. It's a beautiful film. And... um. But you know what? Like, 
at the end, because I actually watched it in two chunks on a flight because mm-hmm. I was the the first bit I watched and like the plane landed like 12 minutes before the oh, end of the movie. How annoying. How brilliant is it though? It must be so good for the film industry to have flights on planes because I reckon I reckon um, they must sell a lot of movies or hire a lot of movies to people who have watched half a movie on a plane and then come home and like yeah, rented possibly, it. Yeah, Because I've done that a few times. Just like, oh, damn but it, now I'm paying like that. seven bucks to see essentially 15 minutes of film. Yeah. But anyway, right. um, I, because I'm a cheapskate, just waited until I was next on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, um, but like, um, this is going somewhere. Um, <laughs> so I watched the actual parade um, the first show in a second sitting of the of the film, and the children who are the models are just incredible to look at. Mm. And there's this amazing scene um, where one of them is sort of swaying along through one of the um, little catwalk areas, and um, uh, all of the um, audience are kind of lined up. And you, I noticed in the crowd there's Harvey Weinstein. He's in the front row oh. and he's, like, checking out this girl and oh. she's walking past and he's giving her the full eyes oh, up and down. Gross. It was so gross. But how funny that he should be visible in for a couple of seconds in this film. Wonder, um, was it a Miramax doco, that, that film? He was just in the audience. Right. I don't think it was. I think he was just, like, they had, like, Anna Wintour and, right. you know, all, all of these superstars and Donatella Versace just looking crazy um so yeah it was just this moment where i just thought god if i'd seen this film six months ago i would not even have noticed harvey weinstein there but like right. in that scene is wow. all i could see was this guy i'm just thinking oh my god gross just kill him with a stick just a quick detour speaking of harvey weinstein mm. man i am filthy about charlie rose the american interviewer being exposed as the latest sex pest I was such an admirer of his. He used to have – he's not super well-known to Australian audiences, but he had an interview show on PBS in America, and it's just one of the best – he's just such a good interviewer. He gets everybody – just a real – I've found him to be a real role model in the way he interviews, and I've always thought, you know, at some point I'd love to have a show like Charlie Rose where it's just – the whole show is just one interview. Um, And he just has a certain sort of elegance and class and he seems like he has integrity and he's an excellent journalist, blah, blah, blah. And so for it to be revealed that he's a sex pest, I just find like makes me feel like I've been ripped off and duped because it's all about me. Well, that's the point, you know. Um, When you trust someone like that, it is all about you because actually Mm. your investment in their program or what they do Mm. is actually – um, it like, is a personal relationship and that's why, I mean, would, like... Would you watch Louis again? I don't think I would. I'm so cross with Louis C.K. I just, I don't know. I think I felt I felt the same way um, about Louis C.K., even though, like, you know, he's obviously a kind of weird dude, but I just think that his sort of preparedness to portray unattractive truths about himself mm. makes me think gave me an expectation that there wouldn't be any unattractive truths that I didn't know about him. Mm. So, like, to use his sort of influence in that way is just a disgrace. I don't know. And, I and really – he really shits me. Clementine Ford wrote a really, really good piece about this um, the other day. Um, and obviously, you know, touching on the broader phenomenon, I'm like, what – how is it that there are so many of these guys, right? Like, I mean, it's – 
the most stunning thing about the stories in the last six months is just like how prevalent this behaviour is among men who are at the figureheads of their organisations. And it kind of just creates this realisation about organisational culture and what people who are um, the organisation's leaders or figureheads can get away with, what people will kind of forgive them internally. I know. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording, like, say Kevin Spacey, how many people have now lost their jobs because Kevin Spacey had to be an asshole? Yeah. Um, hundreds. All yeah. of those people that worked on House of Cards, unemployed. Yeah. How many people on Charlie Rose's show? You know, yeah. dozens. Like, just disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. Louis C.K., I mean, jeez, I loved that show. And so it pains me to think that I wouldn't be able to go back and watch episodes of it. But I feel like, well... Am I going to actually enjoy watching Louis now? Or every time I'm watching, am I going to go, oh, Louis, you sleazy asshole? Ah, oh, the latter for me. Mm. I'm out. Yeah. Plenty of good women comedians who don't grow people. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I mean. The- also, but the thing with Louis C.K. is I think, and this is the same with Weinstein. What's this about, like, masturbating in front of people? Oh. Like, I mean, like, how does that? Could you imagine? Just- okay, take the stories about Louis C.K. and let's replace them with Lee Sales. So Lee Sales invited two young male cadet journalists to come back to her hotel room. When they got there, Lee Sales said to them, hey, guys, would you mind if I ripped one out in front of you? Some, another young male journalist said one time he rang Sales for some editorial guidance and he could hear her masturbating on the phone. It's so laughable to imagine a woman in- engaging in but that sort of behaviour. But also the presumption that someone might find that erotic in some oh, way. Like, I mean, just I just think... Pathetic. Um, okay. Um, now, I took us down a detour. I want to raise something about Dior and I, which I've spent... I just... know. Oh, we started off with Dior and now you're wanking down the phone at your cadet. That's just... Very odd. <laughs> um, oh, dear. I've spent this, an inordinate... podcast is just getting increasingly filthy. It is. Filthy, and I blame you. Um, I have spent an inordinate ti- amount of time pondering the title of that, Dior and I. Oh, yeah. It should be Dior and me. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. But then what if what if this sort of sentence in the mind of the person was, you know, Dior and I have so had a great common. journey, blah, blah, blah. I thought it should have been Dior and me as well. Yeah. But then I felt like, oh, I'm being me, stupid. I think. I think it sounds... Look, both could sound awkward in um, one circumstance or other. I mean, it's a bit dicey, but I would go me. I mean, I actually think it could you could add a better title. Like, what about just House of Dior or something? Yeah. You know, or the collection. Or I, I just would Dior or die. <laughs> um, I would have just gone in a in a um, different direction. So um, um, I have read a couple of good books. Yeah. I was in a funny mood the other day and looking for something. I don't know. So I, I thought I'd jerk off in front of a cadet. That's <laughs> <laughs> how Louis C.K. and Charlie Rose <laughs> roll. Yeah. God. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, no. And so I, I wanted something. I wanted something like a, I wanted a literary page turner. That's what I wanted. I wanted a page turner but not shittily written. Right. Because you know how sometimes you want a really plot-driven, yes, you know, it's I often do. when you're a bit tired and yep. you think, I just... I know yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yep. Anyway, so I, um, I actually, I think I just Googled literary page turner. I mean, a bit embarrassing. <laughs> so, nobody should ever look at my browser history. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> literary page turner. What ca- actually, I'm just going to Google that right now yeah, and I okay. want to see what the first thing Do is. It. But So you keep telling your story. Yep. Yeah. Anyway... Shut up, because I actually found this book. I found, you know, I, there are lots of I books. found the Da Vinci Code. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. What did you Pull find? the other one. God, yeah. really. Some people have got some very old ideas. Yeah. Um, I found a book called The Truth and Other Lies by a German writer called Sasha Arango. I think he's oh, a yeah. journalist okay. actually, but he's um, written this novel. Oh, he's a playwright. Oh, he's a f- screenwriter or something. Anyway, it's kind of this dreadfully funny, dark, dark book. Um, but quite gripping and it's a mystery sort of thing as well. It's a bit – it's got this thoroughly unlikable protagonist who nonetheless is sort of quite funny in an evil kind of way. It reminded me a little bit of, um, oddly enough, Nutshell by Ian McEwan. Oh, yeah. yeah that one where liked, the yeah. tale told by the by the fetus because the um, – the protagonist who is uh, in this book, not a fetus, he's <laughs> a fully grown man, who is like, he's a novelist, um, a really famous novelist. But his deadly dark secret is that he doesn't write the books, his wife does. She just writes this inc- these incredible books, but doesn't want to be a writer, oh, right. has no interest even in writing. She just compulsively writes these books and then just, and when he met her for the first time, they had a one night stand and, and she had this novel um, manuscript under her bed and he pulled it out and read it and just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And she's like, oh, no, I'm going to put it in the bin like I just write for my own sort of entertainment. Mm. And so he steps in and pretends that he's the writer and he becomes world famous and she's just totally fine with it. But then, of course, he's having an affair with um, the secretary at um, at his publisher and then she gets pregnant and so it, uh, chaos uh, ensues. Oh. But um, it's just – it's really funny and also um, it's a bit – it's a bit humbert humbertish as well. Like, oh, great! Yeah, like he's so, like this dreadful. He's this dreadful character doing terrible things, but he's also quite likeable. funny. No, yeah, no, I mean because he's sort of unlikable at every turn. But right. anyway, it's I loved it. It was a really um, did it, it live really, up to the billing as literary page? Tale? Yeah, okay. I really I, I I found it very um, entertaining also and I've, gripping. And uh, I've now discovered literary page turners is actually an awesome thing to Google because the first thing that brings up is. Half post nineteen page turners to enjoy while snowed in. Yeah, I read Goodreads that. Yeah. has a literary page turners I love that shelf. You're telling me this like it's your discovery. Like the your New Yorker has sales explaining it to me. I've read all of these pages. I just told you I googled it the other day. I'm, I'm sharing this for the benefit of the listeners. Yeah, okay. The New Yorker has a page called Big Engrossing Novels: A List and a Quest. Like. Awesome. LA Times, get ready to be obsessed by these 29 page turners. Sorry, Brenda, for just listing all out. You've got to put it all up now. Just, Brenda, just Google literary page turners. They're all there. Yeah. Um, So there you go. And and I did sort through them and I found that one that sounded good and it was good. So there. Speaking of being in the frame of mind where you just want a Mm. page turner that's well written, I have gone back to an old favourite, which actually somebody gave us at our Sydney live show, Lisa the Driver. Yeah. Lisa's the woman who after Sydney Writers Festival last year, drove Annabelle Crabb out to Homebush. Yes, she did. She gave me a copy. And she made us T-shirts. She did. I wore one to bed last night. Did you? Yes. Lisa. Cult co-leader. <laughs> and Lisa has one that says driver. Um, she gave me a copy of one of my favourite books ever, actually, A Prayer for Owen Meany by John ah, Irving. Ah, right. I've not read that. John I, Irving's great, though. I, John I, Irving yeah. is great. You know, particularly that, that era, John Irving, the latest yeah. stuff's not so good. But he has a beautiful style. Actually, Caroline Overington's style reminds me a bit of his, which is – it reads in a sort of very breezy way yeah. and it just hooks you in yeah. enormously and it'll take you on little diversions but then he pulls you back really neatly. Yeah. Um, and I, I just find his characters and the settings, the feeling of place is really pronounced um, and the characters are always memorable and he loves, he treads the line a lot between sort of comedy and just bone-curdling tragedy. 
Yes. I don't think your bones can curdle, but bone shredding <laughs> tragedy. We well, see, anyway, our driver is so handy, really, isn't she? She is. She is bloody she, handy. She's a, you know, book provider as well as a driver. So, yeah, I've been enjoying that. It's, it's sort of easy and it's just about all I'm in the frame of mind for. I am um, um, one of my very favourite writers um, – Australian writers and writers more broadly is Frank Morehouse um, mm-hmm. and I think I've read just about everything that he's ever written um, from his early short stories which are just so fabulous and he's got this great ear for particularly kind of small town Australia mm-hmm. in a kind of waspish way like he's just he's sort of yeah anyway I love him um, but he's just written this very curious book um well he's edited really a collection um of bits and bobs some written by him some written by other people called the drover's wife Mm -hmm. so you know the original henry lawson short story um which is about the drover's wife left alone husband's you know out droving and she's got all these kids packed into a two-bedroom shack and there's a snake underneath and Mm -hmm. she's having to defend the kids against sort of wandering swaggies and snakes and whatever it's an incredible story um and over the years, people have just borrowed that story or written about it or written new angles on it. Like it's become this, like a literary tradition all its own, that story. And, of course, um, the Russell Drysdale painting The Drover's Wife, which is on the front of this book, um, sort of spurred another whole wave of um, literary interpretations of mm. who The Drover's Wife was, right? And so Frank has pulled together this book of all these different adaptations, different short stories, um, and it's it's kind of kooky, but it's really interesting and really funny too. He kind of mm. depicts it almost like this, this legend of the drover's wife as being this sort of thing that writers have been influenced by in Australia but also taken the piss out of. And, like, he's... He's pulled out two short stories, which I read as soon as I um, bought the book. I just saw it last night. He was in conversation with David Maher. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them um, is – I'm just trying to find out. One of them is um, a short story by Murray Bale. Oh, yeah. um, Former Mr Garner. So we disapprove (laughs) of him because what a fool. Um, (laughs) Sorry, no, one should never. Sorry, Murray. Yeah, Sorry, Murray, if you're a listener of Chat know, 10 exactly. Lux 3. That is unfair because you should never try and interpret other people's relationships. But um, I do also blame him a little bit. But um, uh, Oh, my God. I know. But anyway, so it's this beautiful little, just so economical short story. And it's written from the perspective of um, the drover's wife's ex-husband. <laughs> Looking at the Russell Drysdale painting and saying, hey, that's not the drover's wife, that's my wife. And then it's like a little reflection on what happened, how they split up and how she went to run off with this drover and like... (laughs) And what they argued about, and it's this fabulously Australian kind Is he of a guy tale who of hired dispute. a drover to come in, and then he's she... a dentist. <laughs> she left him for a drover, and she doesn't. He doesn't really get it. And there's this like, God, just this hilarious. Not very long, as I said, but account of their marital difficulties, including <laughs> they went on a camping trip once and with the children, and they were pitching the tent, and she wasn't happy. He wasn't happy with where it was being pitched, and eventually they found the right place and um, were woken up in the middle of the night by this terrible screaming sound and lights, and they'd um, camped right next to this like intercity railway track. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so then, and that it's it's really funny and perceptive, and just like so much 
fun. Speaking um, of, but, sorry. But yeah. then there's another essay, I mean, another short story in this collection written by Mandy Sayer, which is written sort of as a riposte to the Murray Bale short story from the perspective of the drover's wife. And she's <laughs> like, I'd like to tell, I'd like to give you my angle on what happened with the whole camping thing. <laughs> Cool. It's just so oh, much fun, and that's and it, great. It's such a sort of thing that only Frank Morehouse would think of that's to great. collect all of these things. And he's also um, included like the director's notes from Leah Purcell's production for Belvoir oh, of yeah. The Drover's Wife. I think I told you about that because we went to see it. It's amazing, and she's reinterpreted it from an indigenous perspective, right? Oh, yeah. And so because there's all these sort of like characters that vaguely appear in The Drover's Wife, like, you know, wandering swaggies and, of course, you know, the blacks, this sort of threat of the blacks. Oh, yeah, And right. so she brings them kind of out of the shadows and in her production, which is just a, a devastating play. She's mm. a genius, Leah Purcell, and um, it's an incredible production. And so um, Frank's kind of incorporated that in as well. So what you end up with, I imagine, I've only read bits of the book so far, but is this sort of really lovely and typically Morehousian um, just little reverie about the importance of this little short story and how it's tumbled down through the generations. And he's also being Frank Morehouse. He's like gone on the sniff about Lawson himself and reckons that Lawson was a cross-dresser and might have, you know, had a sort of... That sounds um, great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is this the time where I admit to you I've not read a word that Frank Morehouse has ever written? (sighs) Put him in with the Dickens. <laughs> I haven't read any. All right, I'm going to make a little care package for you. Okay. Good. Um, I think you would love the Edith trilogy. Would I? Okay, I should yeah. get into it. Um, it's, just add it to my list of just overwhelming list of books that I'm just crumbling under. That okay. I have to read. <laughs> Maybe I might just give you a flip book instead. <laughs> just, I'm just going to Google literary page. Or just a little sleeping pill. <laughs> speaking, speaking of... Um, Marital difficulties. Mm. I just listened to a podcast in basically two flights, uh, the whole thing, called Alone, a podcast, which is by a journalist who works for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She's done, I think it's six episodes, maybe seven, um, of the demise of her marriage from the start to the end in great detail. It's like sort of a personal essay done as a podcast. It was very compelling listening uh, I can only imagine her ex must be filthy. <laughs> it's very unself-reflective, but it's just about everything that he's done wrong, basically, and how um, he, he cheated on her and so it, that was how the relationship ended. And it goes through, it talks from the time they met and when they had their ch- first child and then when she discovers that he's been having an affair and then what happens after that and what happens on the day when she discovers he's having the affair, blah, blah, blah. But it's... It's a little bit excruciating. It's it's very, very well written and she delivers it amazingly, so amazingly that I wondered. I thought, so it's a monologue basically. It's a monologue pretty much. Is it structured in any way or is it like is it catalogued by? It's it's pretty, it, well, it's not quite chronological actually because she goes backwards. In, so it starts where she's dating this dude who she calls the man in the white shirt um, and the reason she's dating him is because her marriage broke up a couple of years earlier right. and then so she goes backwards in time. So she sort of weaves in and out of present day and then back charting the relationship. Um, but it's a little bit, it, the delivery is so phenomenal that I actually at one point thought, 
Actually, maybe this is a work of fiction and an actor's reading it because the delivery is just so good. Right. But I Googled it and it's a memoir. So so she's reading it out loud. Reading she's, it out loud. She's, yep. Right. Okay. It, it, one of the annoying things is there's a lot of music in it and there's a lot of long musical sort of interludes for no apparent reason, which I found a bit irritating. And, and well, her, it's kind of like a conversation with you, really. <laughs> her, her persona, probably also a bit like me, is a bit annoying. She's a bit, <laughs> uh, what's the word, like in her own headspace. But, yeah. I mean, I guess it is about, I guess, you, you know, if you're going to talk about the demise of your marriage, it is going to be a bit in your own headspace, I suppose. But, look, I certainly was hooked on it and I listened, as I said, to the whole lot in a space of a couple of plane flights. Um, but, nonetheless, I felt a bit like you are a little annoying to me and why is there not even one section in this whole thing where you go, okay, yep, sure, the guy was an a-hole and he's cheated on me, but... I don't know, what, what was I like in the relationship? Right, What's okay. my level it's of culpability here? No. But that sounds like a device, really. Like, I mean... Maybe, yeah. Can you imagine how angry the, uh, oh, the ex is? He yeah. would be just, I would assume, beside himself. But um, anyway. I, I also, just quickly, before we run out of time, um, along the theme of single mothers, watched two episodes of a show called Smilf, which is Oh, you know, I saw like that to. on a poster and I thought, does that mean single mother I'd like to? Hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, I was average. Wouldn't mm. recommend it. It's a woman uh, who lives in New York who's a single mother of a young boy trying to navigate dating and sex, blah, blah. Okay. So you'd lost interest already after two yep. eps? Yep. Okay. And so is, is there a lot of sex in it? Oh, the opening episode is about she hasn't had sex since she had the baby and she's wondering is her vagina stretched out of shape beyond recognition so she hooks up with an ex <sighs> to, so he can tell her. All right, okay. It's like, yeah, okay, great. Okay. Didn't really hook me. Um, it's a weird that you should have listened to that podcast alone because I have um, also have been reading um, Rachel Cusk's, you know, I'm just oh, working yeah, through yeah, the yeah. entire Rachel Which one Cusk. are you up to? Well, I'm reading Aftermath oh, at yeah. the moment, okay. which is um, her account of the breakdown of her marriage. Oh. It's, it's really, God, it's typically Cuskian in that it's like, it's really meaty. <laughs> like it's sort of she sort of burrows down into really kind of trying to understand the mechanics of her relationship with her husband. Her thesis is that she kind of became the man in the relationship, but then she despised his femininity. Like it's very like, Oh God, you've got to have a, like, you've got to come up for air periodically. And similarly, I think, Oh my God, imagine the ex-husband reading and just going. "Ah." And so it's not, it's a straight memoir. It's not disguised as a work of fiction or anything. Not really. No. I mean, it was quite controversial when it, came out because it's so visceral you know and wow. um <laughs> imagine living with somebody who was that good an observer you know it would be like being married to Helen Garner or something and just thinking oh god <laughs> you'd never break I'm up not with looking forward to this think... novel <laughs> oh man it would be full on yeah it to be? so yeah it, but it's incredible to read as well because you it's it so be... well thought out but also just quietly devastating just imagine... because of you can sense the actual human cost God. of this book. Imagine if when your next book came out, Good Weekend said, hey, we want to do a profile and <laughs> Helen Garner's going to write it. <laughs> it'd be, that'd be terrible because it'd, yeah. be, it'd be like when you're in the shopping centre and there's a mirror that you see yourself in suddenly and accidentally yeah. and you have that split second where you don't realise it's you yeah. and you go, who's that haggard old bag? And you <laughs> yeah. go, wow. That's me. Yeah. That's what it would be like, I reckon. But also you'd, of course, behave like a total idiot the whole time because you'd be like, I'm just trying to behave. And then, then you'd look even more <laughs> crazed than you'd feared. Um, but actually this talk also reminds me, I'm sure we've mentioned it on this uh, uh, platform before, but um, the greatest breakup, like stitch up job ever is Nora Ephron's book. 
um, oh, I about that. Oh, Bernstein. God. I know, heartburn. Heartburn. Yeah, I've now, not seen the film either. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sales, it's just, it is the funniest greatest most vicious book and like the fact that she wrote it about Carl Bernstein he did seem like a bit of a bounder to be honest um it's just it's it's shameless it's fantastic it's funny it's gossipy it's bitchy it's really it's a it's such a great book oh okay well maybe is that like a literary page turner could it be a good summer read an LPT <laughs> it's like everybody's looking for a little black dress for a page to LPT. Um, Good summer read. Oh, maybe we should just get – we should actually get the um, uh, Facebook group onto this. Like we need to compile our own list of literary page turners. Great idea. Yeah. Okay. Brenda, okay. can you put a post on the Facebook group? <laughs> I feel like, like one of those people that talks into, into their dictaphone. Uh, Brenda, note to self, please set up a Facebook post oh, asking God. people for their literary page turners. Have you one, seen, you know, they're giving away those Google Home devices, which just sound like the creepiest, no. most terrible thing. Well, they're those, you see them advertised on TV. I noticed that the other day that like the Daily Telegraph is giving them away uh, with sponsored, with um, subscription deals or something. It's basically like a box that sits on your, I mean, my understanding of this may be imperfect because I loathe and fear the very idea but it sort of sits on your table and you can yell instructions to it and it'll like so you'll say and you say hey Google and it kind of pricks up its little electronic ears yes, and, you say, and you say things like hey Google can you put on Orange is the New Black so it'll schedule your television to like bring up you know the show that you want to watch or you say hey Google what's the weather today and it'll go me 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 like it's but of course, it's also then monitoring every piece of consumption that you do, and presumably just you know listening into your domestic rows as well. So that's awesome. <laughs> Freaks me out a little bit. Yeah, like it'll probably start. You know, you'll hear it'll hear you having a domestic row. It'll be like, you know, hey Annabelle, I found this number for a marriage yeah. counselor. I thought you might like. Totally. It probably will start doing of stuff. Of course, like that. yeah. Like, or looking for new real estate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Need somewhere to stay tonight, Annabelle. <laughs> Try to stand more motor in. Driverless car outside. <laughs> oh my god! Um, before we quickly run out of time, one other thing that I listened to this week: Richard Feidler's podcast, always reliably brilliant. Um, had Tony Martin as ah, the guest, ah yes, and it was particularly interesting because they both were at sort of not the heights because they both had incredible careers afterwards. But one of the sort of peaks of each of their careers coincided, which was the Late Show used to air straight after the Doug Anthony All Stars ah, on the ABC right. in the early nineties, and so um, they were sort of both big big players in that particular yeah, era. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I mean, Richard's What are they talking just, about on the podcast? Tony's written a new novel called Deadly Kerfuffle that he talked about briefly when we hauled him on stage in our Melbourne show. So talking mostly about that. But they talked about it. They ranged across all sorts of things, you know, different types of comedy and heckling and, you know, like all Richard's conversations, it just meanders all over the place, but it's super interesting. But it was, I mean, Richard was just his usual awesome, gently steering self. But Tony's also just a funny interesting person with a lot of um you know deep knowledge of film and deep mm. knowledge of comedy so it's just actually really a pleasurable you felt like you were st- sitting at a dinner table with them and that the conversation was so interesting that you just didn't even want to interrupt because it was so good oh great I'll a rare feeling for me <laughs> um anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up um oh Oh, I did go see a film the other day. Yes. I went to see Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> I was just drawing a picture to prompt you of a steam, tra- steam train. Oh, my God. It looks like a mechanical <laughs> horse, mate. That's just a shocker. I'll take a photo so, of the um, everyone later. We have a little scribbled bit of paper where um, we made a little rough list of things that we'd done so we wouldn't forget. <laughs> when 
sales manager goes, said, anything else you want to raise? She's like jabbing with her pen at this, frankly, um, illegible <laughs> scribble on a piece of paper and it says, it says, Murder on OE. It says Merkin on OE. It says Murder on OE. And then she starts drawing what she claims to be a train but actually just looks like the weirdest sort of mechanical horse. Uh, And then there's your doodles, man. What was Murder on the Orient Express like? Uh, Star-studded. Like, look, the pleasurable thing about it was that it was really like, you know, like Robert Altman movies used to be like. You know when Robert Altman went through that, you know, making these grand giant films like... Um, Pret-a-Porte and, I mean, Net-a-Porte. Yeah, Pret-a-Porte, is Yeah. Yeah. I've got it mixed up with Net-a-Porte. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. which, which like. happened lots, long time after that film probably. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, you know, and it would just cram these movies with stars, you know. Yeah. And, and that's what this is like. I mean, it's got Michelle Pfeiffer in it. It's got um, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Who's her kill, Poirot? Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Oh, okay, not a hundred percent convinced. Like it's a terrible moustache, and is yeah. it a curly moustache? Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm. but it's very funny, um, and um, it's got Johnny Depp. Um, it's, it's got like it's got a dozen people that you recognise. Judy Dench is in it. Like it's just right. yeah. It's, okay, it's kind of absolutely worth it for the star power. Okay, and it's quite elegantly shot, and um, it is based pretty faithfully on the Agatha Christie. Um, story and you know there's a whole bunch of disparate people on board the orient express someone gets murdered and then they kind of get derailed and um, poirot has to sort of figure it all out and um so it cracks along i felt like it lost a bit of steam at about (laughs) (laughs) it went a little off the rails (laughs) oh god um at about the sort of two-thirds, three-quarter mark, but, you know, and, and the resolution, which is probably more Christie's fault than anyone else, is, is a little bit like, come on. But, oh, um, you're really heaping coals on it now. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, well, you're not exactly driving me to go no, out. No, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed okay. it. And, right. um, you know, you know how much I hate films at the moment, like the fact that I actually yeah, and, um, and enjoyed it. volumes. And it's kind of visually quite lovely. But... You can't get around the fact that they are stuck on a train, you know, for most of the film. So I think that maybe I just got a bit sick of carriages. Um, but, you know, there you go. Can I leave you with one anecdote before I run out the door? Yeah. Interviewed Barry Humphreys this week. Clang! Clang! Um, he told a quite funny – we got to talking about him being towards the end of his years and how he's very conscious of that. And yeah. he, he explained it in this beautiful lyrical way about having a sense that he's in a queue moving towards the front and, and as he's getting older he feels like the queue's moving a little bit too fast. Um, anyway, he said, we're talking about obituaries and, you know, what would be in his obituary. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, the Melbourne age, they had somebody do my obituary and I know that it's somebody who hates me. Um, you know, that person's dead now, but I think we can safely assume it's going to be an obituary. <laughs> B-I-T-C-H-E-R-Y. <laughs> <laughs> made me really laugh. Okay, got to go. Bye. Bye.